Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Brawn Body Health and Fitness Podcast. Today I'm joined by Dr. Derek Nillison. Derek has had experience in both the WNBA and NBA as a physical therapist, and today on the podcast we're going to discuss the differences he's seen working in both the WNBA and NBA levels. We also touch on a variety of other amazing points that I think have a great application to the sport and the development of basketball. So I know you're going to love this episode. And Derek was recently featured as one of the experts I had on our panel of five different basketball individuals to offer so much insight and knowledge on the sport of basketball from a PT and strength and conditioning lens. So if you haven't checked out that episode yet, I highly recommend you do. And I know that you're going to love this episode today as a little addition and add-on. So enjoy. Derek, welcome to the podcast. I'm super excited to work with you today, man. Hey, Dan. uh, Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. Looking forward to chatting. Yeah, for sure. I've heard quite a bit about you and Thankfully, everything's been very positive there. I know we've got some mutual connections, John Gardner and a bunch of other amazing individuals out there. So, you know, today, for people who maybe haven't heard about you or your backstory or anything like that, would you mind kind of filling them in a little bit about who you are and all the amazing things you're doing out there in Phoenix? For sure. So currently I serve as a physical therapist with the Phoenix Suns, Um, basically all things physical therapy and rehab. Previously, I worked with the Phoenix Mercury and the Phoenix Suns kind of in a a dual team role. So the Phoenix Mercury part of the WNBA. um, And that was a hybrid role where I served at their head S&C, their head strength coach, and then was also a physical therapist with them. Uh, Prior to that, I worked with a company called Houston Methodist, which is also where I did a sports residency right after PT school. Um, Originally, I'm from Wisconsin. I did my physical therapy studies at Carroll University, which is just outside Milwaukee. And um, long story short, I ended up here in Phoenix and I'm enjoying it so far. I was going to say that's quite a difference from Wisconsin to Phoenix. Um, You know, I've never been to the Midwest myself, but I've gone from the New England part of the country to Phoenix before. And man, it's hot down there. I don't know how you put up with it year round. (laughs) Yeah, the desert's different. That's for sure. Um, luckily before this, I'd spent three and a half, four years in Houston, which is a different type of heat. Obviously you have some crazy humidity there, but made for a little bit of a less of an adjustment than just coming from Wisconsin to Phoenix directly. Yeah. Yeah. I can imagine. Certainly don't miss, certainly don't miss the, uh, the cold months of January and February. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, you, you can't shovel sunshine after all. And you get like 300 days of it or something ridiculous in Phoenix. So, um, but you know, I can imagine that was a big change for you. And I would also imagine it was kind of like a whole process in transition period for you going from sports PT resident and physical therapist to a role where you're working with a professional WNBA team as both a strength coach and a PT simultaneously, and then transitioning again to a role with the Suns where you're kind of putting more of that PT hat back on. Um, What did you kind of find in your experience there as you kind of transitioned from sports resident and PT at Houston Methodist to your role in the WNBA and then later to your role in the NBA? Was there anything that really kind of jumped out to you as like a difference or a hallmark thing or anything that kind of caught you off guard and surprised you? Well, I think overall it just, it was a large adjustment uh, considering the, my first season with the Mercury, we hopped right into the WNBA bubble, which was at IMG in Florida. So we essentially, I moved halfway across the country with my wife and a month and a half later, I was in a WNBA bubble where we were playing, playing a shortened season. Um, and it, it was a bit of an adjustment taking on full strength and conditioning uh, uh, responsibilities with the Mercury, but as their head SNC, but also being a physical therapist with them. Um, but Previously, when I was in Houston, I had my hand in a lot of different pots, which I think helped. So, you know, I had some some private clients that I worked with more in a performance realm, but then I also was in the clinic. I uh, spent a lot of time a- along both sport coaches and strength coaches and other PTs and other disciplines. So I think that was really, really helpful. And the residency did a really good job preparing me for uh, kind of this multidisciplinary uh, approach that, you know, I had to partake within with the Mercury. Yeah, ultimately, I would say that 
the more I look at things, the more I realize that strength and conditioning and physical therapy should overlap quite a bit. And, you know, I think that that area should be intentionally gray. So it sounds like for you, you had kind of like a background where you kind of blended those things to begin with. Um, and ultimately, I think, you know, at least in my opinion, if you're going to work with high level athletes, you kind of have to know and understand both sides of that, you know, spectrum there, because I'd imagine, you know, three by 10 sideline clamshells isn't quite enough to elicit the adaptations you need in WNBA and NBA players. No, definitely. I think, uh, I think the cornerstone of high quality rehab and, and physical therapy, uh, a big piece of that is high quality training. Um, so I think having that mindset coming in was really, really helpful. And I'm very much a, you know, what assessments am I doing? And then what interventions am I doing to address those deficits or whatever my assessments found? And then when it comes to rehab, um, a big piece of that is what other things can we train and maintain? What training residuals can we maintain while also completing local rehab for whatever the injury is? So I think kind of having that that dual SNC PT um, background was really, really helpful. And and certainly as a PT, I think it's really, really beneficial to have that, to have that piece and at least like spend some time with strength coaches and and be able to uh, kind of slide into that lane, if you will. But like you said, ton of overlap. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, doing that approach allows you to kind of mentally empower the athletes a bit more, I'd imagine, too, right? Like, you know, maybe someone just sprained their ankle and you don't want to load them heavy with like barbell back squat. But, you know, hey, if you can hit some leg extension, leg curl, at least get some leg work in and still crush some upper body work, then, you know, we, we should be doing those things. We shouldn't be shying away from activity and we shouldn't be sidelining athletes from everything when there's ways for us to keep them involved, keep them active. And again, that kind of helps on the mental side of things, because I've noticed a lot of athletes don't like being restricted from sport and activity going from, you know, business as usual one day to nothing the next day, unfortunately. No, definitely. I'm, I'm very much a stickler for, for local qualities when, when there is an injury, but I'm also a stickler for how can we train speed and power elsewhere in the body, you know, even if that's upper body where we're contrasting a bench press with some sort of med ball throw where their lower body's uh, unweighted, um, it, it becomes really, really important to touch those other training residuals or those other training qualities that we need in elsewhere in the bodies while still um, focusing on local rehab. Right. And as a result, you know, even though you're called a physical therapist, you end up be, you end up doing a little more than just what we normally consider physical therapy. You end up kind of going above and beyond, especially when working with high level athletes like this. What was your time like in the WNBA organization there with the Mercury? And you know, I'd love to hear too how your stuff and your experience there differed from your time with the Phoenix Suns as well. Sure. So um, while the leagues are very similar, they're also very different. You know, if you look at just the schedule alone. Um, the NBA season is 82 games. WNBA season is 40 games at the moment. I, I have a feeling that that's going to expand moving forward. Um, the game density per week is a little different. So the NBA is uh, between three and four games a week, which is a lot. And the WNBA is somewhere between two and three. Um, the travel logistics are a lot different. So the NBA is private. private uh, they fly private. And the WNBA um, – is like partial private, partial um, commercial. So that, that becomes a lot different just from a logistics standpoint. When it comes to typical staffs, uh, we're very fortunate here in Phoenix to have like one of the larger staffs in the WNBA. Um, but when I was part of it, it was basically we had uh, our head AT, who was also a PT, and myself, who was PTSNC, and we were kind of a two two headed train leading leading everything there is health and performance, medical, all of it, even throwing on a nutrition hat at times. And then if you contrast to a typical MBA staff, is is rather large, where you more have you more so have a specialized role. Um, so very much different. I think there's there was tremendous value for me working with the mercury and having multiple hats and, you know, having a really full plate um, so that I can, you know, learn and grow and in, in, in all those different areas. And then now I get to zoom out a little bit and be 
really, really specific and, you know, in what I get to work with. Yeah, definitely. You know, you're able to kind of wear multiple hats, as you mentioned, and develop a very broad skill set. And ultimately, I think that's essential for clinicians because, you know, a, a part of PT is choosing the right tool at the right time. But another part of it is having a large enough toolbox where you can recognize when someone's not getting better from what you're doing, you can kind of go to another route of interventions and that sort of thing. And if you don't have a background where you're kind of forced to do all those different things, then you never develop those skills, at least in my opinion. Um, and as you were talking there, you mentioned that with the Mercury, it was you and one other, one other individual. So I'd imagine the collaboration piece was pretty simple and straightforward because it's just you and one other, one other person kind of overseeing everything uh, for the entire team. Is that right? Oh, absolutely. I think, you know, the, the more people you have, you know, obviously you can have a, a very uh, high level product with more people, but the collaboration and communication piece is, is extremely important um, and becomes difficult if you don't have systems in place to manage that. So definitely was a lot easier when you only have two individuals, you know, if I'm talking to a strength coach about, you know, what this athlete can do, it's a lot easier when I'm that strength coach as well. Uh, you know, which was the case with Mercury. Yeah. yeah and, you know, like you were saying with the, uh, with the toolbox, you know, I think another kind of play off of that is I think the ability to zoom out your lens and see a bigger picture through multiple disciplines uh, it is really, really important when it comes to health and performance, you know, for high level athletes. Yeah. Yeah. I completely agree. How did you kind of break up your work on the PT side and your work as a strength coach with the mercury, you know, were you kind of like viewing that as synonymous, like I'm doing the same stuff on both ends or was there like separate what you did as a strength coach with the athletes versus a PT or what was kind of the difference between those two roles like for you? For sure. I, I would say that, that I tried to blend them together as much as I can, which did a couple of things for me and made my job easier. But I also think it helped the athlete um, be more one with their team. You know, for example, if, you know, we had a, a knee injury that was able to do some of what we had planned from a team lift standpoint uh, as part of their rehab plan. And then they had this other bucket that they were completing maybe before we had the team in there, but that at least gives them the opportunity to be part of the team uh, during that, during, you know, the lifting portion prior to practice, if you will. Uh, so I try to blend them as much as possible. Obviously there's times with, you know, with an acute injury or something like that where I was not able to do that. And then that became where my time management had to be really, really on point. And luckily with the, with the mercury, you know, it's a great group and, you know, they were very much on time. They were prompt. They came ready to work. They had great attitudes. You know, it's just a the WNBA in general is just a, a great group of women um, that work hard and, you know, and do the right things on a day-to-day -day basis. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. And, um, you know, that certainly makes life easier when people are motivated and disciplined and all that sort of thing is, you know, the more they want it, um, the more effective your programming becomes. I know a lot of, I'll say like buzzword type things like corrective exercise and injury prevention and all these things exist out there. And they typically go to like the PT world. Like people think of like a standing clamshell exercise as like a PT thing, not a stereotypical strength and conditioning thing. How did you kind of work in like what we consider those stereotypical PT things into your strength and conditioning program? Or was it separate? And you said, look, you know, as a strength coach, I'm going to help them build a bigger engine and get stronger. And then if we need, I'll get into the more specific stuff on the PT side. Uh, so I would say it's more so that that second piece where, you know, we try to build a bigger engine and and get more specific from there. But uh, we're very fortunate to have a lot of resources here from an assessment standpoint. So you can really dial in on what, you know, maybe this athlete has these three, four things that they need to work on throughout the season. And we have kind of a long-term approach with that while that while simultaneously also trying to overlap that with what the goals are for, you know, maybe the majority of the the roster. So I think they, they very much blended. Um, certainly after an acute injury, they were very separate, but, you know, I, I approach rehab with a 
master local qualities first, you know, whether that be, you know, first after an acute injury, just restoring homeostasis, maintaining or getting swelling, getting rid of swelling, um, getting range of motion, and then progressing into strength qualities and power, power qualities, um, which while simultaneously, like we alluded to earlier, you can train the rest of the body in a safe manner. Um, sometimes you just got to get a little bit creative with it, but definitely a blend. Uh, and I think that was made the job a little bit easier rather than keeping them completely separate. It's definitely think there's a huge, huge overlap from what I would call a PT exercise to a strength exercise. You know, I think we, as an industry, and I could rant about this a long time as an industry, we definitely like have like this naming of exercises that doesn't necessarily need to happen. I think what is the desired adaptation? That's the exercise. So for the desired adaptation is flexibility. That's probably a flexibility exercise. You know, if it's a strength exercise, the desired adaptation is strength. So yeah, we have to, as an industry kind of back up and simplify that uh, nomenclature uh, for sure. But you know, I, I don't look at it as like there's PT exercises, strength exercises or anything else. I, I think it's all exercise. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, I completely agree. And ultimately there's value in all of it, right? Like, you know, your traditional PT exercises are not going to carry you through the season the same way that having strength built from, you know, a barbell or landmine or trap bar or whatever type of exercise you want to throw out there will. Um, you know, there's value in just getting grossly strong. And there's also value in, as you mentioned, the individualized assessments that you were conducting and adding in specific things to address those individual deficits. Uh, but ultimately, the best results come from putting them together. And it sounds like that's what you were able to do quite seamlessly uh, for the mercury there. Um, now, looking at the traditional NBA season, I know it runs about 80, 82 games. How does the traditional season look for the WNBA and how did your programming from both a strength uh, standpoint and a PT standpoint look as far as like in-season versus out-of-season goes for the Mercury? Uh, for sure. Yeah. I mean, definitely whether it's NBA or WNBA, you really had to work around the main thing, which is, you know, the game schedule. Um, so oftentimes you're, you're limited to, you know, we have three or four games this week and, you know, our opportunities to train on non-game days is very, very challenging. So uh, we end up having to train on game days. And, you know, I think the, pl the players on both WNBA and NBA, they they buy into that. And there's a huge post-game lift culture across, across the league. Um, so that part, you know, is probably the first thing you have to keep in mind is what, what does the game schedule look like? And got to make sure we keep the the main thing, the main thing, which is the game and the performance related to that. Uh, but I think a simple way to simple way to do it is, you know, we kind of took the intensity of what the day is considering like a game would be the highest intensity a practice, maybe, you know, low, moderate or high intensity uh, and, and match training to that desired intensity of, what the activity was that day. So if, for example, if it's a high intensity day on the court, picture a game day or a really hard practice, uh, it's going to be a high intensity day in the weight room or in the physical, th physical therapy realm, um, whatever it may be, let's just say training in general. And then if it's a low intensity day on the court, more recovery day, maybe we'll sneak in some, some health related uh, interventions uh, in the weight room. Um, in the in, in the training room in, in the rehab sense and then they're getting a lower intensity dosage on court as well so I think I think that becomes a very much a uh, you're you're kind of controlled by the, the game schedule obviously during the offseason you have a lot more wiggle room if you will to really periodize a plan around training principles rather than just the game itself I'm just picturing myself in your shoes here in season you know, right after a game, and now I've got to prioritize certain things in, you know, the lifts, the strength and conditioning sessions, that kind of stuff. How'd you go about prioritizing this versus that for athletes in season? And how did you go about like programming or considering how much is too much or how much is not enough and kind of developing that therapeutic window for strength, I'll say, 
when you know you probably got some altered sleep schedules from traveling across the country you've probably got another game coming in a day or two how did you kind of balance things from a load standpoint in the WNBA um, when you're training after a game and also accounting for what the next day and the following day are going to bring? Yeah, no, I mean, that's a, there's, there's a lot of factors that go into that. I think the biggest thing is identifying, you know, how much did they play? What was their, their game load? Cause so it's kind of starting with the sport, if you will. Yeah. Uh, what, what was their game workload? What did that look like? Uh, there's a lot of tech available that, that assists us with that process. Um, but what does that look like? And then what does uh, the the needs for that athlete in general look like? And that's typically assessment driven, like we like we talked about earlier. So I think really starting with the sport there and backing that up to what does the athlete need from a stimulus standpoint and trying to match that as closely to the exact as what as what you can. And like you said, that's a, that's very much a challenge and uh, there's no million dollar answer there. And a lot of it is, you know, it's communication, it's collaboration with other disciplines, it's communication, collaboration with the, the athlete themselves and what their goals are and, you know, where they're at from a recovery standpoint. And then also like, what do our assessments say that this athlete needs over the course of a, over the course of a season? If it's a, if it's a long season, we have a lot of times to either work on certain things, you know, in a, in a more medical physical therapy type realm or to develop qualities more in, in a performance type round. So you have a lot of uh, small little opportunities to train throughout the year. And I think taking advantage of them and matching it up to what their needs are uh, is really critical. Yeah, for sure. And ultimately, based on what you're telling me, is it has to be individualized. You can't just take the entire team and give them all the exact same stuff when you know, some players are on the court for 40, 45 minutes and others get five to 10 minutes on the court. Obviously, you can't load them both the same. And obviously, when you look at just the differences in the WNBA, you might have one female athlete who's six eight, six nine, and another one who's 5'11". So I shouldn't go out there and expect, you know, both to hit like a full depth, full range of motion back squat right after the game when, you know, we've got biomechanical differences just between how they're structured. Um, so I love your point on the individualization uh, that you were kind of applying to the strength and conditioning NPT model. Um, did that differ at all for you in the WNBA versus the NBA? So, you know, the, the things that you were considering, the things you were looking at, your overall approach to exercises, did that change when you went from working with professional female basketball players to professional male basketball players at all? Uh, I don't think that changed the tone. I think the, the, the big thing here is a lot of these athletes are, they're very long levered. They're long and lanky athletes. Um, but when it comes to like exercise selection, all the athletes may be doing the same pattern movement pattern if you will it's just the loading implement that changes and that that was my approach both when I was in a clinical environment let's say you know I had an ACL and I was trying to figure out what split squat pattern we wanted to do and how we wanted to load that or what squatting pat what squatting implement we wanted to use whether that was a safety squat bar or some sort of front squat or maybe I wanted to heel elevate because they have limited dorsiflexion and they just can't groove that pattern or they're just a bad squatter and oh, okay let's just crush single leg work and and hinge till the cows come home um so i think that really determining what implements you use for the same patterns is critical um and i don't think that changed a ton when you go from WNBA to nba uh, i think across the board you still have you know guards that typically are a little bit better movers in the weight room just because they don't have as, as much length to to work through. And then, you know, forwards and centers that may, you know, have some longer, longer levers that they have to move through. And, you know, I'm certainly on board with the machines approach. And sometimes it's like, what is the simplest means we can use to get this adaptation that our goal is? And sometimes that's just as simple as, you know, leg extension, leg curl, seated calf, you know, getting on a hit machine, maybe it's a Smith Smith machine uh, to take the 
movement competency piece out and just get the load. I think that that becomes a, a very much a, a smooth approach. And that certainly overlaps into the rehab sense because, you know, after an injury, a lot of times athletes can't groove a pattern very well. And I think that's a critical piece to, you know, why can't they groove that pattern? Are they working around this knee injury? So then maybe we need to spend more time on just local isolated knee muscle strengthening to, you know, get to a better strength level, whether your quad or your hamstring or whatever it may be. So that when they go back to a squat, they can develop a more true squatting pattern without, you know, these compensatory patterns that, you know, all athletes are the very best compensators. It's what they do. That's how they maneuver within the sport itself. Right. Yep. I love that you bring that point up. Um, so I'll admit if you go back at, at least three years at this point, I can't believe it's been that long to our early podcast days, you'll find a number of episodes where I talk about training and I was like very opposed to using machines. I was very much a free weight, you know, free movement, free to move kind of individual. And over the past three years, I've slowly adapted to a point where I think everything is valuable and everything has a time and place, especially the machines. And to your point, it all comes, uh, it all comes back to goal and intention with what you're doing and why you're doing it. You know, if I want to start loading like a quad tendon or patellar tendon, and I don't feel comfortable putting them in a deep knee over toe position because they just played a full basketball game and I don't want to put that much load through it, but I need to get something. I can put them on a leg extension machine, put the weight all the way up so it's not going to move and just have them push into that as they're comfortable and get an ISO load through those tendons. And that's easy. It's simple. And yes, it's a machine, but it does exactly what I need it to without causing any other you know, maladaptation, we'll say. And I also love your point about how athletes are notorious for problem solving their movement strategies is, you know, ultimately we can try and improve one thing and it's not going to make any difference for them on the court. You know, I keep actually seeing this example with uh, dynamic knee valgus in a sport like basketball, because basketball players end up in a position of valgus almost every game. Uh, and yet when we look at our training, we always teach avoidance of that. We always teach, you know, continue to externally rotate the lower extremities, avoid valgus. And it's it's one of those things. It's like, you know, should we avoid a position uh, that these athletes are going to end up in every single game? You know, if we don't train it and load it, then are they going to be strong and resilient there when the game time comes? And, you know, that's going to be something that I think you'll have a better answer for than me because you work with these athletes on the daily um, and I, I think that ultimately, as you mentioned, it comes back to what you're trying to do in your training. And if you don't have that intention and purpose behind what you're doing, then any action you take isn't going to really give you any outcome or meaningful result because you're just kind of throwing stuff against the wall, for lack of a better way to put it. I feel like you ultimately have to have some kind of structure and approach to working with basketball players, especially because there's so many different demands. The sport itself is high impact. And it's one that we commonly see so many different injuries with from ankle sprains to tendinopathies. And it's just so many different factors and considerations to kind of put into play when it comes to your programming. No, hundred percent. I think I've, I've gone that down that same, same route where, you know, I used to be all in on, you know, give me a barbell and a rack and, kettlebells and open space and that's all I need um but now I'm certainly I still do those things but you know give me give me isolated machine work give me smith machines you know give me all these different machines so that I can pick more specific interventions to meet whatever the goals are for training or what adaptations we're trying to get um certainly it's come full circle on my end and you know you know it allows me to zoom out and say you know, there's never really like one answer to things, you know, the old, like it depends cliche. It's real. <laughs> it's real. Whether you're a PT, whether you're a strength conditioning coach, whether you're an athletic trainer, you know, it's, it's real across the board. Yeah. On the PT side, based on what you saw in the WNBA, did the injuries differ much from what you see in the NBA? Were there different mechanisms, different type of injury more common, or was it fairly similar and identical? Uh, I would say it's very, very similar. Um, I don't, 
I don't have the data that says otherwise. Um, very, very similar from what I from what I have seen. Certainly, other factors that you have to you know manage. Um, and then I'll back up a little bit from like a from a strength standpoint. When I first started working in the WNBA, I don't think the 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 strength culture across the the league was very very strong. And since that time, for whatever reason, you know, there's been this uh, momentum, if you will, where there's this culture around lifting, which is just fantastic because I think that's a big part of, you know, the debate across like why, you know, females tear their ACLs more or, or whatever that debate is. Um, and there's a lot of a lot of different topics you can go there. But a lot of that is, you know, what is their access to training? What is the culture around lifting? And, and training and working hard in, in the weight room. Um, I think that that's grown a ton in the last few years. And we just love to see that. Yeah. Yeah. No, I completely agree. And, you know, we even see that on the high school side as well, right. Is, you know, we look at some of the high school and college and kind of the next generation of basketball, so to speak. And, you know, there was a time when strength and conditioning facilities just didn't exist for those populations, right? Like, you know, there was no kind of formal strength program that said, look, we're going to look at the demands of a sport like basketball, and we're going to give you a formalized program to prepare you for it from a strength and resilience standpoint. And uh, now I feel like those kind of programs exist almost everywhere. Um, and, you know, our one here in Salisbury that we're, uh, you know, partnered with, there's more female athletes in that facility than male athletes, which is super exciting um, because as you mentioned, you know, some of these different injuries were more common for females for a variety of different reasons. And that in itself is a whole podcast episode from, you know, discussion on laxity to, you know, just overall access to training systems to other, you know, influences I'll say, on uh, injury risk. And ultimately, we might not know all of the answers behind strength training, we might not know, you know, the one exercise to prevent every knee injury or anything like that. But we know that the stronger you are, the more resilient you are. And if something was to happen to you, if you did get injured, worst case scenario, you're going to come back a lot quicker and stronger than someone who's never trained before. And I mean, I see that difference every single day when I look at some of you know, my patients who are post-op ACL, the ones who have a training background and experience always seem to get their quad strength and their quad to fire much quicker than someone who's never trained before. Have you seen similar things in the WNBA and the NBA as well? Do you see that the bigger background someone has in sport um, and training, the better off they do? And, um, you know, I mentioned sport there because I'm curious, do you see a lot of athletes who come from a multi-sport background or were a lot of these professional athletes kind of specialized into basketball from an early age? And that's kind of where they stuck. No, I think the majority of the athletes at this level have played multiple sports. Um, I think that's been shown uh, across a few studies. Uh, but yeah, I mean, you, you'd be surprised how, how talented some of these, some of these individuals are at, at other, other sports. And, you know, for example, they're just like throwing around a baseball or throwing around a football and it's like, wow, you can spin that thing. You can spin the football. It's like, it's really cool to see that. Um, you know, I played multiple sports, but not nearly at any sort of level like this. Um, you know, I played, I played basketball at a, a very small college level, you know, at the lowest level. So uh, this, this um, it, it's been really cool to see like the athletes being able to, you know, talk about, you know, their time playing baseball in high school, or maybe there was them playing soccer in high school and, and, really hearing about some of the opportunities and you know there's there's some guys across the league that you know have had opportunities in in other sports professionally which is which is unbelievable considering the amount of work it takes to just get in one sport um to have that type of skill set to be able to play multiple sports but yeah no I think that's um that's really really cool to see and definitely strengthens that that movement that is you know play all the sports as a kid and you know, and trying to get, you know, much exposure to a variety of things and that variability across um, athletics is key. How do you take that general movement variability, movement IQ, general physical preparation, whatever term you want to 
throw at it. How do you take that and apply that in the professional level? Because I know if you pull up the Instagram, you'll see different strength and conditioning facilities that have completely ditched formal warmups and they warm up with a 10 minute game of freeze tag with, you know, 25 year old athletes and stuff. And I think it's cool and it's trendy, but you know, what are you doing on a professional side to kind of hit that general movement piece? I'll say. Uh, like you said, I think a great a great place to place uh, movement development and you know movement exposure to multiple planes and joints through full range of motion is through a warm up. Um, maybe it's through a recovery session. Uh, I think that's one of the greatest things we can do for recovery is you know get a joint to go through a full range of motion, um, kind of free flow, free flow some mobility and 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 movement. Um, and then also, I think another place to put that is, is with the sport coaches and having this uh, creativity there. Uh, definitely probably the best place to put it if um, if you wanted to transfer to the sport itself. And then certainly the easiest place to put it if you're if your goal is to get buy in from an athlete, if they're going to allow themselves to be creative and free flowing and and, you know, getting in some positions they wouldn't normally get in and and kind of play around that with sport coaches. Uh, I think that's, that's a great place for it. Yeah. Yeah, no, definitely. And I love your point on even mentioning the recovery piece as well, because how often do we hear the term recovery and think of something passive, right? You know, throw your feet up on the couch or, you know, maybe sit in Norma tech boots for half an hour or something like that. And while there's nothing wrong with those things, I think that there's also value in active forms of recovery as well. Like you mentioned, and ultimately, I think the more we can promote movement, the better off we're going to be is, you know, I, I think as a movement profession ourselves, we shouldn't necessarily be shying away from movement just because someone is a little bit sore or a little bit achy. We just have to find ways to modify it, um, at least in my opinion. Yeah, that's, I mean, interesting you bring that up. I think the, like, if you think of like a recovery pyramid at, at the base of it is, you know, sleep, hydration, stress management, all these basic, basic things. And for whatever reason, as an industry, we really zoom in on these small things related to recovery that maybe should be, you know, less than 10% of the equation, you know, passive modalities. And, you know, certainly before that should be, you know, active strategies or even active passive strategy, passive active strategies where, you know, it's some passive you know, on the table, maybe it's manual therapy, or maybe it's some sort of um, intervention where it's hands-on from, from a medical professional, and then getting some sort of activation as well, or active strategies as well. Um, certainly, there's times where you go all passive, you know, if a, if a, if an athlete comes in, and they're absolutely wrecked, and, you know, they just don't feel like moving at all. Okay, at times, you can throw them that bone. But, you know, not at the expense of making sure that did they sleep enough? Did they eat enough? Are they drinking enough? You know, what's their what's their stress management strategies look like? Um, are they in a good spot with that? I think that that needs to be like our main focal point. And for whatever reason, I think a lot of professionals zoom in on on some of the the passive strategies that really make up a very small piece when it comes to recovery. Yeah. And not even on the recovery piece alone, but also just the overall performance piece is, you know, how often do we look at someone who, you know, just looks tired, sluggish and deconditioned in a game and say, well, you just need to run more. And in reality, it's they got three hours of sleep the night before, stressed out, they didn't eat well, all these other things, you know, we completely uh, forget about that and neglect that in the moment in exchange for just kind of saying like, it's clearly just the physical training stuff. And ultimately, as you mentioned, there's so many other factors that can influence that state. I mean, sleep alone can change muscular strength and muscular power output by a minimum of 10%, I would say, based on past studies that I've seen. And yet we kind of neglect that and say, well, we should have just pushed them harder. We should have just done more instead of actually, let's take a step back, assess the situation and see what this person needs. Um, you know, I think ultimately... We look at athletes and we think athlete, we don't think person. And, you know, we kind of have to put the person into that picture at some point, at least. 
No, definitely. I think that's where the ability to kind of zoom in and zoom out from a lens perspective and, and use your, the other people you work with, you know, I think when it comes to being an athlete, it takes a team, it takes a team of, of people to really um, mentor you, if you will, you know, if you, you know, if you have a, a physical therapist that you work with, you work with an athletic trainer, you have a strength coach, you, you know, you have some sort of consult with a nutritionist or a dietitian, you have um, a sports psychologist you talk to, like, it definitely takes a team. And, and I think the higher level an athlete plays that, it becomes more and more important to, to have a team approach and to have a team in support of these athletes. Now, how do you take all of these higher level athlete type approaches that we've discussed so far and kind of scale them back and apply them to say the high school athlete, the next generation, you know, from your eyes as head PT and former head PT and strength coach for professional athletes, how do you kind of take what you see on the day to day and apply it to the next generation? There's there things that you see being overemphasized or the things that you see not being emphasized enough. What kind of things do you see? No, I think that's a uh, that's a great question. I always say like, what what's at the bottom of the pyramid? Or you know, we kind of keep coming back to this pyramid talk. But like, what's at the bottom of it? What's at the base? What are the foundational things that we're trying to develop? And um, we need to have these these youth and these younger athletes understand what is the foundation for whether it be development as an athlete or recovery or whatever the topic is, what's at the base of the pyramid. Let's do all those things really, really well early. You know, you could, you could use the uh, let's do simple things savagely. Well, you could use that cliche there. And I, I think that is really, really um, important for athletes when they're younger, but also keeping everything fun and light and, and free flowing. And, and, you know, and that's where, like you talked about earlier with the movement competency, I think that's a great place to keep training fun and and keep training interesting and keep kids interested uh, throughout the process. And then the other piece of that um, is, you know, for whatever reason, I think multiple disciplines, we have like this obsession with complexity before we really master simplicity. Uh, so I think when it comes to like, if we provide for, uh, younger athletes or athletes that really at any level, whether it's professional or all the way to youth or recreational, like we really need to master all these simple things first before we get to the nuances of, of complex things that we don't really thoroughly understand. Because a lot of times we, we think we understand these simple interventions that we can use, but we really don't understand them that well. Uh, right. I think like keep things simple, keep things fun. Um, is would be definitely like my mantra and my approach you know the theme to my approach with with the youth athletes for sure yeah i love that point and i love how you mentioned it's a development it's a progression it's not the kind of thing that you know your youth athlete is going to be squatting 315 for reps in a year um that doesn't just happen naturally for every 14 15 16 year old future, you know, women's basketball player, men's basketball player, whatever. Um, it's a progression. And ultimately, like you mentioned, if you get someone to fall in love with that process of improvement, you know, sure, you know, you might be able to make more sweeping improvements if you dial them in, get them serious and all that sort of thing from an early age. But if you do that, do you run the risk of the mental burnout, the, you know, not wanting to play the sport and just the overall detriment that comes with a lot of the early specialization, you know, if all we ever do is one sport our entire life, then that's all we're going to know. Um, whereas, as we mentioned before, there's value in being able to do a lot of different things. Um, you know, I know he's not a great NBA or WNBA example, but Patrick Mahomes comes to mind. A guy who played, you know, three different sports growing up and you watch him play uh, football and sometimes he throws the ball more like I would expect a baseball player. And sometimes he takes the snap, he runs right up to the line and kind of alley-oops it right over top like a basketball player would. And he's just been revolutionary for a sport like football. And, you know, just because games like basketball or football have set rules doesn't mean that there's not freedom to explore how you play the sport within them. And I think the more we kind of teach people just general movement, 
the more pioneer you're going to see or cavalier you're going to see some of these athletes get uh, with strategies like that. So I think there's a lot of value in that. And, you know, kind of like you mentioned before, too, there's value in simplicity, right? Like, I love to get all complex and get to the point where my PT interventions were are looking like cool and Instagram worthy. Um, but there's a progression to get to that point. And, you know, I'll admit sometimes we don't always show that, you know, before we get to the point where we're doing the really cool single leg RDL with one band pulling that way and a band pulling that way, we kind of ha just have to master the ability to single leg RDL. And sure, that might not be all fancy and cool and elaborate, but if we can't do the simple things, then doing the more advanced complex things is not going to go well because we don't even have a understanding and mastery of basic skills. No, that's, that's so true. Uh, going back to Patty Mahomes, like I believe he has a clause in his contract that says he can't play pickup basketball during the off season. <laughs> uh, supposedly, I, he grew up in Texas, but supposedly um, he was phenomenal at all three sports, football, basketball, and, ba and baseball. Um, but kind of tying this back, you know, uh, youth athletes are so plastic in their like in their learning, you know, whether that be traditional learning or movement learning or whatever it is, motor learning. Um, it, that's where I like, I think that simple approach when it comes to loading them is critical. Like why would we want to load them and explore movement at the same time? If we haven't really explored that movement, you know, which is one thing that I do when it, with rehabs is I always have multiple exploratory exercises within either a warm up or later in the later in the session after we've already got all of our really specific um strength speed and power quality training that we wanted to get in that day we'll explore either something that they haven't done yet um so either something that's putting a little bit more stress on their their rehabbing tissue or maybe it's a a plane of movement that we haven't even got to yet so maybe we haven't done anything in the frontal or the transverse plane uh, we've been strictly sagittal and ver vertical. Um, well, I'll throw I'll throw some sort of exploratory, free flowing movement there to see how they tolerate it to give them some exposure, yeah, uh, in in those planes. But I think that's a great way that PTs can throw some exploratory movement, you know, place it in a warm up and just make it part of the programming. Is like always going to have something that is exploring. Yeah, yeah, no, I completely agree. You have to constantly be exploring the new thing, the next thing. And ultimately, you know, coming with that is sometimes you're going to suck at things, for lack of a better way to put it. And you have to be willing to accept and admit that you're not going to be good at every single thing the first time you do it, right? Like, for me, I can go in the gym, I can take a belt, strap it around my uh, waist here and tie three or four 45-pound plates around it and do pull-ups with two arms. But I can't do a single arm pull up. I can't do the front lever, the back lever, all those cool like, you know, street workout things that you see some of these uh, calisthenics people doing. Like I can't do those things. And that's OK. It's OK to not be good at things. It's OK to not be at the point where you've mastered everything. And I think ultimately we kind of forget that it's OK to take, you know, five minutes a day and work on those things that you just absolutely suck at. It's OK to you know explore the things that you're not good at and improve with them over time um, I think a lot of times we just have a tendency to lean into someone's strengths as coaches as strength coaches especially uh, and we kind of forget that it's okay to hit the things we aren't good at um, and again that applies for athletes but uh, also applies for us as individuals right like you know if you see a new approach uh, to rehabbing something a new intervention or whatever it's okay to try it with an athlete and have it go great. And it's okay to try it and, you know, it not go well. The only way you're going to learn and improve ultimately is if you try things and see what uh, helps and see what doesn't help. And you kind of have to improve through your movements forward as a profession, I would say. No, definitely. I think a lot of times we get very narrow-minded as an industry on like, oh, we need to, you know, barbell squat this athlete. And we need to do it. And they're just not good barbell squatters. So, you know, maybe it's something where, you know, this athlete really wants to barbell squat. They want to back squat. But 
we can't really load that to get the adaptations we want. So maybe we go back to machines like we talked about earlier and we use machines to load and then we still work on barbell squatting, but we don't do it, you know, with the goal of, you know, inc- increasing strength, speed, power, you know, where we have to have adequate loads, but we do it to improve movement competency in that lift specifically. Um, so, you know, I'm not married to any specific training strategies. I'm very much open-minded when it comes to training and what athletes want to try and, and what implements we want to use with them. Uh, I certainly want to train in all planes of motion. I want to train all foundational movement patterns, whether that's squat, hinge, push, pull, lunge, carry, rotate, um, kind of take that, take that approach when it comes to that. And then I want to make sure I'm restoring local qualities, but those are all very, very simple concepts. And, you know, I apply them to both rehabs and, and, and performance training uh, kind of across the board. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Derek, this has been a great conversation about some different things that you've seen on the WNBA side, as well as the NBA side. And I also love that we kind of took it a little bit more globally and hit some great considerations and points for PTs, coaches, and just any kind of individual working with kind of the next generation of professional athletes and stars. Do you have any kind of closing thoughts, closing remarks, or anything that we really didn't touch on that you really wanted to kind of hit as it relates to NBA, WNBA, or any other considerations? Oh, no, uh, Dan, I think I, I, I think we covered a lot of topics. I really like how we kind of brought it full circle in a lot of different directions. Um, but brought it all back to the, the rehab and performance realm. Um, really enjoyed our conversation. Nothing really else I, I need to add. Uh, it's been a pleasure being on the pod, though. Yeah, definitely. Really appreciate your time here, Derek. For people who want to stay in touch with you or see what you're up to, are you on social media or can they find you online anywhere? Uh, yeah, so I'm not super, super active on 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 uh, Instagram or Twitter, but uh, my handle is at D Nellison. So that's D N I L L I S S E N uh, for both of those platforms, I believe. Um, also on LinkedIn, if you want to reach out and and have some sort of more uh, professional discussion um, or connect professionally. But like I said, not super, super active on uh, social media. You know, you mentioned LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram. I would have picked you as more of a TikTok guy, Derek. <laughs> I don't have a TikTok. No. Uh, <laughs> you're not making the pregame dances with the team oh, or no, anything no, i don't think i'd have this job if i was doing that <laughs> <laughs> well derek it's always a pleasure talking with you i really appreciate your time and all the insight you shared with us today thanks dan really enjoyed the, the, the discussion and uh, thanks for having me on the pod thank you so much for listening to this episode of the broad body health and fitness podcast if you liked this episode please make sure to share it with a friend subscribe so you don't miss any of our upcoming episodes and leave a review. This way we can spread knowledge and motivation and help reach more people. Thank you again for listening and I'll see you next time.